What's up, guys? Welcome to the Zen Falls Podcast. Today, I have a founder, a special guest today, uh, someone who is creating the world's largest search engine for audio ideas. His name is Amit Kukraja. And uh, I just want to pass over the mic to Amit and just learn a little bit more about you. How would you describe yourself? What's up, what's up? Thank you for having me on the podcast. Really excited to uh, have this conversation and hopefully, hopefully get some people interested in what we're building here. Um, how would I describe myself? I would describe myself as someone who is trying to fight for purpose and meaning in my life. And uh, for some reason, I just love the chase of going after something that seems unattainable, whether that is with girls or whether that's with uh, purpose and trying to build something. And I think all my life, to sum it up, I've tried to do things that are not easy to do. I failed at a lot of those things, but the journey of trying to get them has been the most purposeful and meaningful thing that I could have ever decided to pursue. So with what we're doing at Audia, and we'll talk more about what the company's about, in a nutshell, before we get into it, it is a startup and I'm trying to be in the 1% of people who are successful in business, right? Like I've like, from what I've understood, people who build a successful business, whether that's IPO or a major exit, it is similar to being a rock star in music or like like a basketball player. Like it is really, really difficult. And I'm not saying that to hype it up. I'm saying just the probability and the odds are just absolutely stacked against you. And that to me, it seems exciting. It's like, all right, well, if the odds are stacked against, let's go, you know, flip over the odds. And so, so that's what we're doing. And and that's hopefully uh, what what we're going to be able to do over the next couple of years. So I guess to me, like, were you always entrepreneurially driven? Like, let's say if you go back to your childhood, what what was that like? Like, I I know you said you're from New Jersey, but what was it like growing up in New Jersey and um, that story? Here's the thing about me. I don't think I'm a natural born entrepreneur. I think I'm naturally more creative. And my mom did a really, really good job instilling a level of uh, personality in me when I was young and making sure I was social, even things as, as small as like having friends come over for sleepovers. My parents are immigrants from India. So, so traditionally those parents are a lot more conservative. They're a little bit more scared of letting your child go out into the world. My dad was a little bit more like that. My mom was the opposite. So my mom actively wanted me to pursue and develop a, a personality that was meaningful enough to communicate and get people to care about how I speak and how I talk. And she knew that, you know, even if you have a good GPA, it doesn't matter if you can't get people to care about anything that that you care about in the world. So as I was growing up, she instilled those values in me. That never came from a business sense. Like it never came from like I was hustling, selling lemonade or anything like that. Like I never had that business mind, even though my dad was an entrepreneur, like my dad owned an actual store and he still owns a store. So like he was a full bred entrepreneur, but I never even considered him like that because that's never what I thought of. But I'm always naturally creative. I think entrepreneurship is a framework to express creativity, particularly because if you have a creative idea and you want that creative idea to get get out into the world, You need other people to care about the creativity that you produce. That intrinsically requires a level of attention at at scale from a lot of people. And in order to get their attention, you have to facilitate a mechanism by which that attention is then given to you, whether that's through an Instagram account or whether that's through starting a company. And for me, we can dig deeper into the story of Audia. I wanted to create content in a particular medium that I did not see the platform or company existing for. And that's why I went the entrepreneurial route to then create that company. Like to me, it's not even entrepreneurial. It's like the creation of this thing, going back to me being more creative than entrepreneurial and then trying to, you know, build something out from that. So I think growing up my entire life, I've been more creative and entrepreneurship is just the vehicle to express that creativity. And I'm learning how to be like a better entrepreneur. So, so what would you say uh, like draws you towards entrepreneurship? Is it that creativity side or is there anything that you struggle with on a day-to-day basis? Well, number one, it's not the money. And I think, I think, and I think, so when, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I started getting into entrepreneurship. I started listening to a lot of the popular social media people around entrepreneurship and sort of started getting into that world. And very quickly, and I think everyone goes to this when they start thinking of, of owning their own business and having equity in the, in the, in the thing that they create is uh, that they start to become motivated by money. So I definitely was motivated by money, I think, for the first two years. And that led to a lot of crappy businesses, which ended up failing because there was just no larger purpose or soul or mission. And I see this now with a lot of the competitors that I think are in my space. I'm like, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. By the way, we might fail. But if we fail, it's not because we're motivated by the stupid, arbitrary nonsense that you guys think is important, like money. We can, we are going to fail because we just you know we didn't have a good product. But the money will never be the, the fundamental reason for why. So I think the first two years of going into entrepreneurship, I was motivated by money. Once I got kicked in the ass and realized that money is not the, the driving motivator, I started switching my perspectives towards what actually matters, which to me is, is, is building something and going on a chase. So to answer your question, you know, what appeals to, uh, about entrepreneurship, it's this idea 
that you can build something and that people in the world can then use what you build and the vision that you had for how you build it then you know disseminates across the masses and if you get big enough it's, it's a lot of masses that end up using what you built it's it's something to chase i guess is what appeals me to entrepreneurship mm-hmm. so, so i guess you mentioned you had like a few other startups that you created and how does audio separate from that like if you dive into some of the startups you had before like what did you learn from each one yeah, that's a good question. So I had a, uh, I think I did the typical one that everyone does a marketing agency. I mean, I remember walking <laughs> down, I, I remember walking down the, my, my hometown and going to a bakery and like going up to the, to the owner, like, Hey, how much monthly revenue do you guys pull? <laughs> he's just like, he's like, I'm not going to give you that information. And I'm like, but I can help make you more monthly revenue. And he's like, get the hell out of my face. So I tried doing that stuff. Uh, I started e-commerce, Shopify, dropshipping, all that stuff, lost a lot of, you know, I, I calculated how much I lost in Shopify dropshipping, which was like five, six grand. If I had invested in Shopify stock during that time in 2018, I would have like 35 grand because their stock just, you know, quadrupled since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the experience, I guess, was meaningful. So I, I tried e-commerce, tried marketing. Um, I tried opening up like an institute to teach like a tutoring company, all this stuff that ended up failing as well. Um the Wait, reason what with that with that though with so the tutoring company i think marketing was the biggest issue i had rented out an entire office space in new jersey it was fifteen hundred dollars a month um and you know we set it up real nice it looked great and like i was teaching a lot of things that i knew i could teach so it was like i guess you'd call it a little private school mm-hmm. but marketing was really difficult i mean we didn't do analysis of the demographics of the place we were putting the company in and just like you know, like we did Facebook ads, we gave flyers, we did word of mouth, none of it worked. And like, that's when you really get punched in the face. It's like, yo, you're spending 1500 a month on this office space. You have no clients. Like you're literally not bringing in revenue, right? That's when I was just like, oh, I'm really creative. I want to do business, but like, I suck at it. Like, I'm not good at this thing. Um, And, 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 you know, those failures were, were super important. Audia is different for two reasons. Number one, it's a tech company and a tech company is just fundamentally different than everything else I was doing. Everything else I was doing relied on like a demand side of uh, money in exchange for some type of product, whether it was like my time in terms of teaching or whether it was like a physical good um, Mm. or a service of marketing. This is different. When you build tech, you build it once and you reiterate on the features and make it better. But once it's out there, it's out there. Like Clubhouse is out there and they're just going to add new stuff to it, but it's going to exponentially grow based upon uh, the concept of network effects, which I've become fascinated about uh, when, when it comes to technology. So that's the first differentiating variable. The second differentiating variable, and, I, and I've thought about this a lot, which is why this is a really good question. I started this when I was 23 and I started making business uh, opportunities when I was 18. So I had a good five years of fucking up really badly. It's okay if we curse. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> fucking up really badly. And those five years taught me so many things of what not to do. And I'm still, you know, making a lot of mistakes, but now the mistakes are more so like, how do I communicate to one of my co-founders to make them, you know, how do we have a good exchange and a good energy versus mm-hmm. like, we just don't have a good idea and like, it's all messed up, stuff like that. So, so I guess like, what is the network effect? So in general, and this is, this is just fascinating. I've been learning a lot about this stuff. A network effect is when one user is added to a network, it adds more value to the other user. And these types of businesses are just absolutely incredible. So Facebook, I think is the obvious example. Facebook has very zero value if you have seven people, but if you have 7 million people, each new person adds value to the other person. Why? Because if you are creating content, you have people in order to consume that content that is part of your network. If you are going to get content or consume content, you have people creating content for you. So there is a symbiotic dualistic relationship between both sides of the network, the the, the suppliers and the people who are consuming the supplier or the demand, which makes the network grow infinitely. Uh, This is what happens with YouTube. You have videos, you have people consuming it. This is what happens with Uber. You have drivers, you have people requesting uh, rides. And once you build out a solid network effect around a niche that your uh, company is, 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 is engaged in whether it's content or homes with Airbnb or cars with Uber, then it's exponential because as long as you keep reiterating on the network and people keep coming back to the network, more and more people join the network and more and more people engage with the network. And that ultimately becomes a hub for certain sub communities in the world to exist in. Facebook is probably the world's hub because you have 2.85 billion people. But then you think of something like Reddit, which has all these like sub communities inside of sub communities that are part of the internet, which have little hubs in, in, in and of themselves. 
all major technology companies have network effects. Um, and even companies outside of technology have network effects, but it, it's not to that big of a, a degree because technology obviously can just uh, attract more people. Mm-hmm. So with Audia, our network effect is we are an audio-based distribution platform and we want people to upload audio ideas to our platform and we want to give them discoverability. In order to give them discoverability, you need people on the consumer side going to consume those ideas. So the problem we've been having, and we're, we're getting better at solving this problem, is how do you get people to come to the network if there's no content, right? There's no creators. And how do you get creators to come to create content for the network if there's no people to consume it? And the way we've solved this, the way I think I've been going around solving this is I just think in the early days, in December of 2020, I would get on a Zoom call with 10, 15 people a day. And I would be like, hey, I'm building this thing. It's not going to be out till April, but trust me, it's going to be awesome. And if you post your content here, you're not going to get any people listening to it. But when we get bigger, you will get people listening to it. And somehow I managed to convince a thousand people that that made sense. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but let's definitely dive into that. I mean, because like, how did you, because I don't know, when, when I see idea and like, I just see it growing, like, how, how did you get those first users onto the platform? And um, like, like, how do you do all that? Like, I, I genuinely think it comes down to communication. I mean, I, so, so there's two parts of it. First was like, how do I get people to even give me a, a, a little bit of attention? And then how do I convince them once I get their attention? The first thing was I got a lot of emails from people who would be my target demographic, thought leaders, podcasters, and, and people who communicate through spoken word. How did I get their emails? I spent a lot of time on the internet trying to find emails. So like, all right, I got that part done. I got the emails. And that was like hours upon hours of just like searching for emails and putting them in an Excel sheet. Okay, you got the emails. Now you got to send the email. So I crafted a seven paragraph email. And we, I actually want to talk about this because you, you, you might have a different take and a lot of people have a different take. I crafted really long emails explaining exactly what I was trying to do. It's like I was giving them a pitch deck in the email. And then I sent it out. And my whole thought was, I'm very verbose. You might've told, I talk a lot. I say a lot of words. So when I write, I end up saying a lot of words as well. It's actually a weakness of mine because I'm not as concise, which I, which is why probably not that good at Twitter. Um, but so at that point I'm sending them really, really long, you know, emails mm-hmm. and what was counterintuitive about it, like the innovation, I think in getting those people to respond, because most people think it's spam. Most people think it's, you know, get out of my unsubscribe, all this stuff is when you give people more information, they actually are more interested. Like if you say, hey, I'm starting this new platform. I would like to have a Zoom call with you. Can we meet on Tuesday at 3 p.m.? People are like, no, like get out of here. But if you're like, hey, so I have this idea that if there was an algorithmic feed that could recommend your audio content, it would be much more better than it, it would much be, it would be much more better than it's sitting on Spotify where Spotify gives no organic discoverability. Do you think we could have a meeting so we could talk to you? And then they're like, oh, I'm interested. And even then the success rate on people replying to emails is going to be so low. But those couple of people that you get, you like lock them into a meeting. Like, can I get 20 minutes? And then the magic happens on those 20 minutes where I'm able to sell them the vision. And I just got really good. I was really bad at pitching it in the beginning, but after you do it 10, 15 times, you start to get better at pitching it. And then I started thinking of it as a challenge. I was like, okay, I really want to pitch it. Cause then people started asking me questions They because they were like, well, why is this going to work? Or how are you going to do this? And then I was like, oh, so people have this, this, and this objection. Here's how to answer it. And then I just answered it. So every time I got a new objection, I already had an answer. So people already felt like I was so prepared. I was so on top of my shit on how we're going to build this platform. It's giving this allure that this shit's going to go to the moon and we want you to be an early part of it, even though it's not even created yet, even though we don't know if we're going to get funded, any of that stuff. And it was, you know, I was convincing enough, I guess, to, to get people to join. And that's how we got a thousand people. Yeah. Well, the thing that I love about that, I mean, is like the sales aspect of like, that's literally like, like cold email. Sales one on one. Yeah, and then objection handle, and then you sold them. Like, you, I guess your version of the sale was getting them onto the audio platform. Like, did you literally have, like, just get, in the beginning, but not to cut you off, before the platform yeah. was launched in February, March, January, it was getting their email secured in a list and having their consent to email them once the platform did launch. That was the close. And once we got that, then, and then we, then when we emailed them, they didn't sign up because most people forget they signed up for something three months ago. So it's like constantly following up. And then, you know, we just kept going. So, so did you have a background in sales at all? Like, how did you get so good at sales? So I had a background in uh, debate in high school. Uh, debate's a really nerdy thing but, that most people think of. But for me, I was really, I was really competitive. In it. I got to like travel across the country, basically travel across the world because I was on mm-hmm. uh, the United States national debate team when I was a senior in high school. So oh, I was dude, able to- crazy. Yeah, it was really cool. We got to go to like Germany and Slovenia and Croatia. And we got to debate against like Bangladesh and Pakistan and like China and all this stuff. It was like, it, it's like- 
people don't know about debate because it, it seems nerdy, but it's almost like imagine being on a basketball team and then traveling across the world to play basketball. But instead you're talking and you're trying to get judges to vote for you against other teams. Um, so I ended up becoming the seventh best debater in the United States in 2016. I was the third best speaker in Europe in 2015. So I ended up just getting a lot of experience, not in traditional sales, but in terms of selling ideas on different topics because each round we had a different debate topic uh, to someone against someone else, which means I had to handle their objection. And then ultimately I had to have a passionate delivery mechanism to get that person to give me their ballot, which was my money and vote for me. And I did that for three years in high school uh, and it naturally kind of stuck with me. So then when it came time to sell my own idea to the world, those are the, the skills that I ultimately utilized. So, so I guess like going on this adventure, like with, with the debate team, like what did you, looking back, I guess, I mean, like what did you, what, what can you pull away from that experience? It is the single it is the single biggest reason I'm here and, and, and I am who I am today, um, particularly because the thing about me in high school was that I had this, you know, desperate dream of becoming the next Michael Jackson and becoming a musician and becoming a singer. And I really, really wanted to like Michael Jackson's death affected me so heavily in 2009 that it, it, it lit this fire in my soul of me wanting to be, you know, the guy on stage performing and moonwalking and doing all that stuff. And um, by the time I realized in high school, I didn't have the capacity to sing. I wasn't talented. I'm not going to get a record deal. You know, that was really sad for me. I mean, and I genuinely mean this. I know it sounds crazy, but I was really upset that I couldn't be a musician because I really wanted to. So the debate ended up being this medium in which I could be on stage and I could dance, i.e. communicate and get other people, fans, judges, people in the audience to resonate with the way I was performing on stage. So it made me feel like I was my own version of Michael Jackson in a medium that I was actually uh, skilled at, which is speaking, which by the way, is developmental, right? That's the thing I love about communication. It's like, you can get better at this. You, you, you don't need to have intrinsic singing talent. You just literally need to put in the hard work of, of doing research and, 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 and refine your communication skills. So debate was like a form of salvation from the tragedy of me not being able to exist in my uh, music performer dreams. So at that point, when I saw the salvation, I saw the light, I ran towards it. I was like, I'm going to go all in on becoming the best communicator that I can possibly become because it was just a high every time I was at a debate tournament and the judge would be like, I voted for the affirmative. There's two sides, affirmative and negative. Round one, oh, I voted for the affirmative. Round two, oh, I voted for the negative. Round three, I voted for the next thing you know, I'm 7-0 at these national tournaments, seven wins, zero losses. And I'm going on to the uh, elimination rounds, which are doubles, octos, quarters. It's almost like an NCAA bracket for debate. And then I would be in finals and I'm like in a room with a thousand people. And, you know, I'm like debating against this person. I'm like, all these people are here to see how I talk, how I communicate, how I present arguments. That's like amazing. And it was just a high that I, that I couldn't get off of. So debate was the, the, the basis for me to develop communication skills, but also feel that I was a performer when I couldn't be the type of performer I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, now with Audio, hopefully, you know, I can keep performing. So I guess I mean, like coming back to debate, like what does it take to be a world-class debater? Um, I think it takes a, a, a underlying commitment to understand how to present arguments in a way that actually get people to care about them. So me, I definitely, I had a good staff of coaches around me. They definitely influenced me. They helped me a lot. Um, but I think I was just like intrinsically motivated by no matter who I was debating against and who was in the back of the room, I wanted them to feel like my passion, my energy. When I was a debater on the circuit, a lot of the running jokes around me, um, well, cause, cause you know, we have a sub niche of debaters were like, oh, Amit's just gonna yell. He's just gonna be passionate. And then he's gonna get the judge to vote for him even though he doesn't say mm -hmm. anything. And every time people said that, I'm like, I don't think you get it. Debate is not really about what you say. It is all about the performance. I mean, this is the reason Trump got elected. He didn't really say stuff that was that meaningful. I mean, sometimes he did, but a lot of the time it was just like dumbing down stuff, right? Like it, it, it just, it, he took really complex ideas that someone like Obama would spend three minutes articulating and he would send one sentence. And that resonated with a lot of people who didn't have that type of intellectual capacity to understand uh, an articulate communicator like Obama. So to me, it's all theater, it's all performance. It's all the way you present yourself. It's all your hand movements, your, your body language. And that doesn't come from knowing what you're saying. It's, that, that matters. It comes from having passion to deliver what you're actually going to say. So mm -hmm. I think to become a world-class debater, you have to have passion for the way you're communicating. And then once you learn about what you have to communicate, you'll get better at the actual technical elements of like selling an argument. But I think it just starts with believing in that argument in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think you definitely bring that passion into audio. Like I watched a video of you of how you like built your team. And I guess you met, you met your CTO through like a, an app that was kind of like Tinder for entrepreneurs. 
Yeah. Like, how the heck did you build your team for audio? Like, that, that just blew my mind because, like, like, how do you do that? And, like, how do, you get, how do you get a group of people together to work on an idea, to build it, to get through the problems, to work as a team, um, and to do what you guys have done today? Yeah, no, I'm really grateful for my team. I have two co-founders right now uh, and I love them to death. They just, because they took a chance on me when like I had nothing going for me other than like my ability to sell it. But first of all, when I, I had this idea back in June, 2020, right? It, it was COVID, it was pandemic. I was just thinking about this. I was like, what if speakers could be rock stars? What if there could be this audio platform, blah, blah, blah. And then it kept dying down. And then October, 2020, I'm like, no, I really want to do this, man. Like, I really think this could become a big thing. It was so naive just looking back at it. I'm just like, like I just, I just had this idea that I wanted to build this thing. And then I started looking up, okay, how do you start you know, a tech company? And the number one thing I got from my, my, my inquiries of searching was that you need someone technical to code it. It's like, you could have the best idea in the world, but if you do not have someone who understands infrastructure of technology, you're not going to get anywhere. And that's the thing I kept coming across. I thought I could get away from that because it was like an insecurity. I was like, well, I can't code and I don't want to have to find someone to code. So how else can I build a company? And every time the roadblock was like, you need to find someone who can do this and convince them. So there were a couple of options. Go work at a startup and go make some connections and get some friends. And hopefully two, three years from now, you could convince them. Go approach your college network. I tried approaching my college network. I didn't have anyone in my college network, unfortunately. A lot of my college technical friends had very fancy jobs. They were not going to give up those jobs. So that just wasn't, that was a non sequitur. And then third was like, go find someone like on LinkedIn or something, just go find them. So I logged on to this website called starthawk.io. And um, I met, I, you get three free credits to message someone because or else you have to, to pay the monthly subscription. So uh, I was willing to pay, but I messaged the first person. His name was Amin. And, you know, and I think this is where a little bit of luck came in. He, he, it was luck, but it was also determination, right? Because I met, texted him. He responded. He said, okay, let's set up a meeting. Mm-hmm. We got on the meeting. Um, in order to get that meeting, I sent him a pitch deck as well. So, and I spent a lot of time making that pitch deck. So that pitch deck, I think hopefully showed him like, Hey, this is not just some random kid. Like he actually has a thought out idea and it might be worth taking the meeting. He took the meeting. He was getting 50 requests a day because when you're technical, you're the, the, you're, you're, you're the golden star, right? Everyone mm-hmm. has an idea, but you're the guy who can actually build it. So you have all the leverage. So he took a meeting with me. And within 10 minutes, I think he just felt that passion felt the vision for the idea. He could see what the idea could look like. And for him in particular, his thing was like, look, if I can see the passion in the founder and I can see a resemblance of what the idea can look like, I have an opportunity to jump in. Um, so he took the jump with me and within 10 minutes, we secured the domain name right then and there. And that, that was the crazy part. I mean, it's funny you're asking this because I woke up the next morning and I felt like I was in a dream. I was like, I wanted to start the startup in October, like 13, 14 days later, I found a co-founder who has 27 years of experience. My co-founder is 50 years old. So he, like, it's a very weird, uh, or I guess weird is the right word, dynamic. It's like a 23-year-old and a 50-year-old. That doesn't exist in Silicon Valley. Like, you usually have 20 years old, you or you're two 40-year-olds. You don't have this wide age gap. But I think that's actually our biggest advantage. So I woke up the next morning, and I'm like, I have a co-founder. I'm like, I have someone who's, who's all in on this idea. And so then we started setting up weekly meetings. We got to know each other more. We started building up stuff. The next Monday, he emailed me, you know, my email, amit at audia.io. He had set up everything. I'm like, yo, like we're in motion. We're getting this started. I'm like, this is happening. And um, then we found a third co-founder. This guy was from Brazil. This Amin had recruited this guy, we had him for like two weeks. And then the next week he just ghosted us in the beginning of January. We still have not heard from him this day, like on our discord, we, we have no idea where he went. So now I was back to square one, which was just like, okay, we need another person because I mean, he can't do everything by himself. I mean, he also has a family, he has other commitments. Like we need someone else to help us with this. So that's when I was like, all right, I got to go find someone else. And now I'm just like, man, I'm not going to get lucky on start Hawk, start Hawk twice. Like that, like lightning strikes in a bottle, not that many times. So that's when I went the LinkedIn spammy route, paid 30 bucks a month so they could let me message as many people as I wanted to. And I just start sending out messages. And LinkedIn is just horrible as a sales navigator right now because it is built on as a platform that is rooted in spam. So like every time someone gets a message, even if you say, hey, I'm not spam, even if you use their first name in the email, the, the artificial intelligence bots that are associated with LinkedIn have become so good at making spam that doesn't look like spam, but it is spam. So when you click on it, it's already spam. So people just ignore everything now that comes their way couple people didn't ignore. They opened the message. And then that's how I found my third co-founder, Jace. And that's how we started. Holy, yeah. Well, it's just the thing that fascinates me about, uh, the thing that fascinates me about you, Amit, is 
the fact that you had this idea in October, 13 days later, you just kind of took action. And um, I guess if you have advice for someone out there, like let's say me, myself, or someone out there in the world who's wants to take action on an idea, maybe it's like a tech idea, but there, there's just those barriers, right? Like, oh, I'm not a technical person. How am I going to do this? Um, what advice do you give that person to take the leap? Um, I feel like I've always taken the leap uh, when I had an idea going back to all those failed companies, uh, not knowing that they were going to fail, but feeling like they're like, here's my mental trait. You have to feel like when you start the process that it's going to work, even though it's probably going to fail, but you're not looking at the failure. You're looking at the, the, the fact that you're so excited for it working. Like to me, it's like, you don't have to be, it doesn't have to work. You just have to be excited to do it. And that goes back to a larger philosophical discussion that I believe that the nature of existence is oriented. This whole life thing is oriented around finding something to do in the morning. And most people do things throughout the day that are just so rooted in things that are arbitrary, that are not intrinsically rooted in the shit that they want to do, that then it results in a level of unhappiness and it results in not taking the leap for the things that you want to do. I was just always someone who's like, I want to be the next Michael Jackson. I'm going to go perform Billie Jean at a talent show. I did that. I got $100 first place prize. Like I went in front of, <laughs> I was in sixth grade. There were seventh and eighth graders in the auditorium. Like I'm like a little child. I'm like four foot seven. Michael Jackson died seven months ago. I'm like, I'm so inspired. I deserve, you know, to go perform Billie Jean and lip sync it in the town show because Michael Jackson's legacy deserves to be immortalized through my performance. Mm -hmm. I did that. And the whole school went crazy. Like it was awesome. And I'm looking back on that now. I'm like, what sixth grader actually goes on stage, has a white glove in his hand, lip syncs Billie Jean in front of all of his friends, plus all the upperclassmen, and thinks he's going to get away with it. And I did it. And I'm, and I'm really trying to psychoanalyze myself. I'm like, why did I do that? I was like, well, I just feel like, why not? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like it was something to do. And, and so I did it. And then, you know, I think back now, I think in college, right. Or I think in high school, I really wanted this girl. Like I really, I was so attracted to this girl and I was like, well, let me go talk to her. And, and then I went in and I talked to her. She ended up becoming my girlfriend for the next two and a half years. And it's just like, it just happened. Like, like mm. my whole thing about it is the chase and the process to jump is where all the excitement in life is. And if you fear away from that, everything good that could possibly happen from the unknown is always going to be unknown. So the trick is you got to jump and it might go better than you ever imagined, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so I guess like in terms of entrepreneurship, like is there a certain key entrepreneurs that you, you look up to for inspiration or are you more, do you just find that within yourself? Um, so I definitely look up, I, I, I would be you know, lying if I just said I didn't look up to Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't listen to him as much anymore because I think his content is more so when you're lost and you're trying to find your way. So in college, you know, I would put on my AirPods and listen to his keynotes when the teacher was talking because I was like, he is saying stuff that's just so much more meaningful. So he was definitely a big influence for me. Um, I think Peter Thiel is a really interesting character, uh, especially because I think his book Zero to One uh, and the idea around zero to one and, and how you take an idea from zero and you go to one and you build a monopolistic business that, that doesn't engage in competition. Um, it's, it's a really influencing and fascinating idea. I don't agree with him that much politically, but his business sense is just you know fascinating to me. So I definitely look up to him. Jason Calacanis, I really like this guy. I don't know if you know him. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur. He's an angel investor in the, uh, in, in the States and he has, a, he has a good podcast and um, he's just a very public investor. He invested in Uber, Robinhood and Calm and all these other companies. So these are people I go to for advice and, and just listen to how they think about entrepreneurship. But really, I mean, it's like, it's taking the jump and just like figuring out a lot of stuff on your own and all this content and all these entrepreneurs putting up keynotes and podcasts and stuff to consume, but having an internal fire inside of you for a vision that you need to see actualized to me is like the basis for actually actualizing mm -hmm. that vision. So, so I guess, I mean, like, let's say there's someone out there, like how can they build that internal fire to go and, and chase their dream and make it real. Like, I, I love the fact that you said like that philosophical idea of making kind of your own reality and waking up every morning and having something to do and like being excited. And uh, I think that that's, that's rare, you know, like, I, I don't know if everyone has that in the world. And I think I, like, I, I feel like you have that and like, how can someone build that? I, I think there's two, I think there's two theses that I have uh, that I'm working on for how I think, I've built it and how it might be helpful for other people to build it. Number one is through a, 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 a strong amount of adversity and tragedy. So I think there's two elements to this. Number one, I already talked about the tragedy of me not being able to be a musician. Um, and when I say it's a tragedy, I mean, I 
really wanted to be a musician. Like I wanted to be in the music industry. And I actually have plans for 20 years from now, how I'm going to fuck up the entire music industry because I wasn't able to do it performatively, but that, you know, we can get into that later in 20 years. But so the point is uh, that's a personal tragedy, right? That, that, that dream died for me. Wait, so why was that such a big uh, tragedy for you? Like why was music so compelling? even before Michael Jackson's death, I was just always, you know, attracted to music. I would literally, my mom would put me in little talent shows when I was little. Jesse McCartney was a big influence in 2004. Like, I don't know. I think music was transcendental in my life at a very young age, like a very young age. There's a picture of me at three years old holding this fake guitar and I was acting like a rock star. It's like, I don't know. I'm still trying to analyze where that came from, but there were things about music that influenced me when I was very young that led me and then it culminated in Michael Jackson dying, which then led me to figure out who Michael Jackson is because I didn't know about him before. Mm-hmm. Then you go down the roller coaster, Michael jackson i think is just you know he to me he's like a he's like a god almost in terms of his aura and his personality and that led me to go deeper into music and it's like you want to do something so badly and then you realize you can't it's like you want to be in the nba so badly it's like you're five seven you can't do that like it's just not going to happen so that tragedy happened and then uh i needed to figure out how to save myself from that tragedy so to answer your question the way you develop an internal fire is when you figure out how you can save yourself from a personal tragedy that you've had. So one was music, that my failed music dream. Audia is a way for me to build out that music dream in a different medium, which is why that internal fire exists because that internal fire would have already existed if I was going down a music path. But because I'm not going down a music path and I have something that is similar to a music path in terms of chasing and building. And if we get our seed round, it's like getting my first record deal type of thing. It excites me because it's the hunger that I wanted to become a musician in a different medium, which is a blessing in my opinion, because I'm like, shit, I have a chance to actually do what I wanted to do, even if it's in a different medium. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you've actually had a real adversity, because what I'm talking about, it's bad, but it's like, like it's not a real adversity. Real adversity is like you're homeless. You, like you don't have enough to eat at night. Like your, your parents are on drugs. They don't like all stuff like that. Um, and there is something in my life. I don't want to talk about it publicly yet because I'm still you know, figuring out my thoughts on it. That has been a real source of adversity, uh, not in terms of like, we don't have stuff to eat at night, but just more personal familial wise. And I've just, as I've gotten older, I'm like, this shit was so bad that happened for the past 20 years. And it's get, starting to get better now, but it was just so bad that if I don't do something to save me from this shit, like I'm just never going to be able to get away from this. It's like the stuff people go to therapy to, to talk to people, to therapists about in order to rationalize the irrational stuff that happened in their life. To me, I'm trying to channel that energy into building something so big that it will recuperate the, the, the shitty stuff and adversity that I've been through in life. I think internal fire has to come from those things. I don't think internal fire comes because you want to make a million dollars. Like it comes from something bad and you've got to find something bad. And if you don't find something bad, manufacture something bad. Like I genuinely believe you've got to make some shit up to give yourself that fire. Yeah. Well, well I love how you put that. I mean, like that was well said, but, um, but yeah, that's like, that's incredible, man. But uh, I guess like coming back to ideas, like how, like, like what, where do you see the future of Audia going and like really like what is Audia to anyone listening, listening out there? I, I think we're going to fuck up the whole audio industry. And the reason I think we're going to do that is because right now there's two problems that exist. Number one is podcast discoverability sucks. We are seeing an explosion in spoken word audio content. Clubhouse, podcasting, 2000 podcasts started a month. Spotify investing billions of dollars into podcasting. It's a big niche. I think in 10 years from now, people are not going to be blogging. People are going to be listening to what people have to say. Like, it's just a medium that is so much more accessible in terms of consumption of content and so much more enriching and intimate that I think it has a chance to really be one of the premier mediums we have, maybe even go beyond video consumption. If that's the case, the number one thing you can give to creators who are in any field, much less the audio field, which is exploding right now, is a word that starts with D and it ends with Y. And that's called discoverability. Um, discoverability end with a Y? I don't, I don't even know. But the word is discoverability. I know it starts with a D. Definitely miss, miss said that. So discoverability is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. If you can get people discovered, everything else that is a byproduct of discoverability, which is money, fame, opportunities, whatever, happens because there was an inflection point in their creative career when they, with their content that happened through a centralized platform that facilitated a level of attention at scale that now they were able to take advantage of and then hopefully go build a career for themselves that was meaningful. I don't think the two platforms that exist today, because there's only two of them that really matter, Spotify and Apple, are doing that for average creators. And I'm not saying this of some opinionated belief. Spotify is spending billions of dollars 
on premium content. And Apple, they're not spending on premium content, but their entire user interface is basically like, you gotta be New York Times to get on the front center. They've always been on the side of premium content, which means at that point, I don't think small creators have a chance to get discovered on those platforms. I just genuinely believe it. When someone pays Joe Rogan 100 million, call her daddy 60 million, God knows how much money to Barack and Michelle Obama. They just paid the, the, the Dan chair, our armchair expert dude. Um, and, and all these other, and Gimlet Media is $184 million production studio in a Spotify. That means that this thing right here, this home screen where you need to be on in order to get discovered is crowded by all of this premium content that this company has paid for. So if a company says, oh, upload your content to our platform because you know we're a hosting service, we're gonna help you get discovered, but they paid billions of dollars to premium content that is then populating their homepage, by the way, they have Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande. They have all these musicians that you also have to compete with because 99.9% of Spotify's revenue is through music. It's not even through podcasting. Mm. Where the hell are you going to be able to get access to a user base that is actually going to see your content and click on it? Because that's the funnel. They got to see it. They got to see a title that's interesting, a picture that's interesting. Click it. Get 30 seconds of consuming it. Be interested enough to keep consuming it. Then subscribe to you. Then enter your tribe. That's not happening on audio platforms. I think if we build the audio platform that is able to do that, which the video platform that I think uh, comparable that is able to do that is YouTube. We build the audio version of what a YouTube algorithm has been, which has gotten 2 billion people to come back to that platform every month. I think we fuck up the industry because at that point, Spotify can go ahead and keep buying these premium content uh, uh, podcasts. Apple can go ahead and not give a shit about creators. We're going to be the company that emerges and actually gets people discovered, which means people are going to double down on that platform. And I think we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna win in spoken word audio. So that's what I, th I, th I think our future is and, and hopefully our potential is. In terms of what is Audia, to me, it's a YouTube of audio. It's a platform where you upload audio ideas or ideas around a keyword and niche, meaning you're a, you're a weight loss nutritionist. You upload audio content, spoken word content around how to lose weight, how to you know better help your gut and probiotics and all that shit. Mm -hmm. And, we, and we take our algorithms and we say, hey, who are people that want to know about this? Let's put your stuff in front of them when they open the feed. If we do that, you get discovered, you build an audience, and then we build a massive network effect, which means you get to infinitely keep building an audience, which means you double down on our platform and you gain discoverability, which is the single most greatest thing we can do for creators. I think if we can do that, we can win. The final thing I'll say here is that we are trying to innovate in the audio space. So you have musicians, you have podcasters. I think there is a world in which we can have speakers almost seen as if they are musicians. So I think there's a world in which someone like Gary Vaynerchuk releases a speaking album and singles off of his speaking albums, which to me would just be like talks versus songs through our platform. And our platform is optimized to get those discovered and branded enough in a way where the, the Gary V's of the world, the Ted talkers of the world feel as if this platform is built for their spoken word ideas, not just their long form podcasts. And if we can give discoverability to those ideas, I think we build out a Ted like media company without having the Ted brand and having it be open source to the world. So you don't have to apply to speak at some fucking $25,000 conference. You just upload it to the, to the, to the platform and the platform gives you scale. Oh yeah. Well, the thing that's so fascinating with this meet is it just shows you like with your life story, like debate, um, the Michael Jackson story, like the, the performance, it's kind of like you're taking all this stuff and audio is like the next version of it you know it's, it's a culmination of all the shit i went yeah. through which is why it's really exciting to just like go all in and keep working on it exactly you're exactly it's right it's almost like you're literally the perfect founder for this <laughs> just, just like well that's yeah, what it like, should be like right like yeah. yeah but um but yeah i guess like what is the date in life at audio like, like i guess now building a startup getting to the point where you've got it it's over like i think over a thousand users now it's growing but like what what's the day in life like do you wake up how do you structure your days or what do you do uh, well, real quick, we are at um, 11.68, but who's counting? Anyway, um, <laughs> 11.68 users. That's, uh, no, and, and, you know, the reason I say this is because, like, users are gold. Like, just getting more users, every, that, is the, that is key to, like, us being able to have oxygen. So going back on that thesis, a day in the life of Audia is getting more users. I mean, that's what I do all day. Um, I wake up. And so, so I have a, a separate job because I need to pay the bills because Audia doesn't pay the bills yet. So I do some consulting work on the side uh, for a couple hours a day, get, mm -hmm. get some income from that. And then the rest of the day is trying to figure out how to get more users. And that's through email campaigns, that's through marketing campaigns. We just did a partnership with a famous keynote speaker who is a professor of philosophy. His name is Dr. Tommy Curry at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. 
Um, I got him to be on the platform. So he has massive reach. So we did a partnership with him yesterday. He uh, basically Facebooked out the, the fact that he's on this new platform. And we got a lot more people checking out the platform from across the world because he, he sells like 3000 bucks a year. Like he's a very influential author. So it's securing those types of partnerships. It's doing things like this podcast and then it's getting more users. That's like the top level thing. The second level thing is making sure the product is working. So right now we're experiencing a couple of important bugs that are going on right now that we haven't been able to resolve. So I just got off a meeting uh, on Thursday night with my two co-founders and there's this one bug that's just like, it's just not getting fixed. So we're just putting all of our energy in terms of figuring out how we can fix that bug. And so it's, it's dealing with the product, it's getting more users and it's keeping myself sane enough to feel like I can actually do this. Cause I know I sound confident, but there's a lot of days where I'm just like, man, can I actually do this? Yes, I have those days and mm-hmm. making sure I keep my mental health in check to, to know that it is possible. And so I guess like diving into those days, like, I mean, how do you pick yourself up when let's say you're just having a, a tough day and you, you, you feel like you want to quit? How do you get the strength to, to come back up? It's really hard. Like it's, uh, and this is where I'm going to be a little bit more vulnerable. If someone wants to start anything, much less a company, again, what I said at the beginning of this podcast, which is like, it's actually like being in the NBA. It's actually like getting a record deal. Like it's actually that difficult. It's just, there's no barrier to entry because like anyone can start. But like, once you're in it, it's like, you realize how hard it is. It gets tough because you, you're just, you just start realizing like Facebook exists, Spotify exists, you know, Amazon. It's like all these big companies are doing all these big things. They have all this data. They have all these trillions of dollars. And I'm just this guy that's like, yeah, I'm going to try. And those days can really weigh you down because instead of feeling on top of the world, you literally feel like you're on the bottom of the world and there's no way to, to get back up. I think the way I've been getting out of it is just finding, you know, inspiration as, as much of an inspiring guy that, you know, I may seem like I am, I need inspiration from other sources. So recently, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of J Cole, um, but his, 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 his mixtape from 12 years ago in 2008 or something that he released is what I've been listening to. And cause that's when he was nobody. And now he's, you know, a mega rapper. Um, but when he was a nobody, he made a mixtape called the Warm Up, which is just like his, you know, he's warming up to become something big and I'm listening to him talk and express these ideas. And, you know, I'm listening to him say like, if I quit now, then my life's going to be worthless and I got to keep going. And I got, and, this is, and you start resonating with other people who have, were in this position. I think that's the thing. It's knowing that whenever you want to do something, you are going to be in a position where you feel like you can't do it. And anyone who has done anything important was also in that position. So if you're that similar to Jeff Bezos in 1993 or Steve Jobs in 1975, then you were them. They just ended up persevering and they kept going and they became who they want to be. Now you can keep persevering and keep going and and likely still fail like most people do, but at least it's, you know, that you've got a shot to be them because the prerequisite of them winning was to keep going. So it's constantly reminding yourself that you've got to keep going and also reminding yourself how far you got. It's like, look, we have a thousand people. We have people who want the product to succeed. Like we've got, we've got some investors who are interested in having meetings. Like we've got something going here. There's just no reason to quit, which means if you've got a little bit of fire and you know that the prerequisite to success is that you've got to keep going, then there's just no time to sulk in the sadness of woe is me. It's like, go all in just so that there's a chance that, you know, you can get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love that. Amit. But, um, but yeah, like, I guess I have a few more questions for you and I know, Absolutely. um, We've been going at this for a while, but like, where can people like learn more about you and me personally and check out Audia and find you on social media? So please follow me on Instagram because I don't have a lot of Instagram followers. I'm trying to trying to step up my IG game. Uh, it's at it's Amit Kukreja. So you can follow me on Instagram and get a lot of updates there. Um, Audia is audia.io. You can just go to the website and start consuming some audio. We are live on the app store. If you type in A-U-D-E-A, uh, we should pop up. Um, and yeah, you can download the app to register. It takes like two minutes to set up an account. It's really simple. And then you get into the world of audio and you get to start consuming the content that we have on the platform. And I guess we'd have two more quick questions for you, but yep, the first one is, I got time, man. Don't worry. Okay. Well, I guess this one is, uh, let's say there's a founder out there. He sees this interview and he, he you know, he hasn't started a company yet, but, um, if you had to kind of go back to his shoes, like what advice would you give him day one starting Audia? Don't have, don't even know if you're going to get to a thousand users, you know, don't even know if you'll get to 10 users. What, what, what would you tell them? Tell someone who wants to start a company on day one of starting their company. What advice would I give? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So it's day one of starting. I mean, I, I think the, th- the reason we got to a thousand users in three months was because there was like an obsession over the customer to be cliche obsession over the user experience. So again, for me, I want speakers to be like rock stars. 
and I want, this is the thing, if you're creating a social platform or a network platform, you need to make sure there is a relationship that a user has when they are consuming content on the platform, but more importantly, when they're creating content on the platform, because that's going to be the life, the bread and butter of people actually caring about your platform is the content that's uh, on the platform. So the experience that an individual has when creating for your company, your platform, whatever it may be, needs to be emotionally and psychologically mapped out. So what Facebook did in 2005 um, and 2006 was they realized, okay, right now on the internet, everyone's like anonymous. Like it was cool to be anonymous on the internet. They said, what if we make everyone real? Like what if Amit is actually Amit and Facebook is just the virtual uh, reality to say the least of Amit? feelings that people would have of, of connecting with other real people, which ended up being a pretty good bet because we like connecting with other people. And then that exploded. So I think today, if it's day one and you're starting a tech company, you have to think about how are people going to emotionally engage with your SaaS product, with your content sharing product, whatever it may be. And I think I did a really good job, at least when I was, was starting to think, I think speakers aren't getting discovered on other platforms. And if we can make them feel like when they press publish, there's a chance to get discovered, even if the platform has no one there, but they feel like it, like they go to the homepage and they see their shit. They don't see Justin Bieber. Like they actually see them. That already is creating the psychological feeling where, wait, maybe I should keep using this thing because if it blows up, then there's a chance I actually get discovered by the masses. And then two, I wanted to map out the emotional and psychological feeling of someone feeling they could release a single or a speaking album on a, on a platform that was optimized for them. So those two things I over-indexed on. And then when I communicated the message to people in the early days, um, that was the thing I was leaning heavy towards in terms of the value proposition. The advice to someone is figure out your value proposition and become obsessed with how that value proposition appeals to how someone will create for your company or create or use the product in and of itself. And then if you can just communicate that in the beginning days, you're gonna to start to get some people who, who, who hopefully validate the demand around your product and then um, see if you, know, if, if you can convert some of them to become users. Mm. So, so I guess uh, coming back to attention too, is like, why is it important now in like this attention econ economy like, to, to get attention? Like, I guess why, if, whether you're a founder or like a content creator, or um, like a athlete, like why is attention so important nowadays? Well, attention is so important because attention is the gateway towards a lot of opportunities happening. And for me, I think we're talking a lot, there's a lot of buzzwords now about like the creator economy and like people thinking about creators and like over-optimizing for creators. And what we're noticing is that the reason the creator economy is a thing is because media information has changed. Like in 1950s, the, there was no creator economy. There was ABC, NBC, CBS economy. They controlled the media and Hollywood that we consumed. Now people have realized, wait, it's more interesting to watch someone's TikToks versus watch, you know, an NBC sitcom. Like who, like who watches sitcoms anymore, right? Yeah. So at that point, attention has shifted to creators. Well, what's the definition of a creator? It's you and me. If I put out a tweet, I'm a creator. And I don't care if you say you have to have some fancy definition of create. If you are creating content, you are a creator. You might not be a successful creator, but you're a creator. You're, you're, you're creating your own uh, discography of, of content that exists on, uh, through these social platforms, which means there is now economics oriented around that creativity, around that creator economy. If that's the case, that means attention has now become democratized. That means attention exists literally with you making a video or you putting out a podcast, whatever it may be, because now people can, 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 can take the collective attention that was going to the CBS's, NBC's of the world and then attach it to the creator economy. If that's the case and you have something you want to share with the world, whether it's becoming a politician, whether it's you know showing off your cake brand, whatever it may be, the prerequisite towards anything successful happening is cultivating a level of some community that gives their attention to you on a daily to weekly basis so that you can convert that attention into money or external opportunities, which means if attention is going around and all you have to do is go and create to get it, and you don't have to go through Hollywood or NBC to create a sitcom to get that attention, mm -hmm. then it's, it's like, it's the greatest land rush or gold rush of all time. Cause it's like, I can get people to give a shit about what I have to say. And that never existed before. And if you're a founder, you've got to get that attention because I think more importantly, I think, you know, this is the reason Tesla spends $0 on marketing is because Elon has 50 million Twitter followers. I mean, if Elon had a million Twitter followers, they couldn't justify that because he did, he wouldn't have the aura that he has. And Tesla, mm -hmm. even though the car is amazing, wouldn't have the marketing behind it that is, that is permeating through Elon. 
So I think as a founder, I'm going to be the one that sells the company in terms of the vision to people. I, you know, we can't make some ad and get some actors to be like, I'm the ad, I'm the advertiser, I'm the guy. If you, I need to blast myself on every platform 15,000 times a day in order to get people to actually give a shit about Audia, which is hard to do because I'm only one person. But if I can keep doing that, you know, then there's a chance we can, we can convert some people. Well, it's working, man. And I think like you have the thing Elon has, like Elon is a genius at that. I've noticed in any, like it could be like crypto or anything that comes up, like he'll just tweet with it and it pulls people into Tesla. And I feel yep. like with you, like you've been put, putting out YouTube videos. That's that's what caught my attention with you, like how you build audio. And uh, man, it's working, dude. And it's, you, you're growing, right? So I guess I mean, um, for the last question I have for you is, let's say the world, the whole planet could hear a message from you all at the same time. Let's say it was on a billboard and you read it. What message would you give the world? Um, be motivated by your mortality. So be motivated by the fact that you're going to die. Recognize that because life is so finite and there is a, there is a end to this existence, uh, not to be too morbid, but to also be too morbid. It's like, it's recognize that, look, this shit's not going to be here forever. And that the things that you want to do, there will be a reality in which you cannot do them anymore. For Forget because you're dead, because at a certain point, you biologically will not be able to walk the same way that you walk just because of the nature of aging and that problem that we all have to deal with at one point. So use your mortality as an existential motivator to then reverse engineer the things that you actually want to do in your life and then do them uh, unapologetically because the inevitable result is it doesn't matter if you succeed or fail. You're going to die. No one's going to care. By the way, the earth is going to die. The sun, this thing that gives us the oxygen for the plants, the light, that's gone in 4 billion years. It, it's a star. It burns out. This is science. So if that's gone, we're gone. If we get to 4 billion years from now, which means all of us are going to be gone. So take advantage of this moment if we happen to be here right now. And there you have it, guys. Amit Kukraja. <laughs>